Hey there, I'm Zen Hess, and you are listening to Currents and Religion. This is a podcast brought to you by the Religion Department at Baylor University and by Baylor University Press. Thanks for listening today. Christianity has no shortage of takes on who Jesus is and what his works accomplished or do for those who believe in him today. To help us think through some of these takes, in this episode, I'm joined by the Reverend Dr. Trevor Hart, a well-respected theologian and an Anglican clergyman. You can learn more about Trevor at his website, trevorhart.com. He's got a new book out with Fortress Press called Confessing and Believing but our conversation will largely reflect on essays he collected together and published with Baylor University Press under the title, In Him Was Life. There's a link to that book in the episode description. Anyhow, let's get right into the conversation. Enjoy this chat with Trevor Hart about Jesus and his works. Dr. Trevor Hart, thank you for joining us on Currents and Religion. It's my pleasure. So you have spent a great deal of time thinking and writing about the relationship between Christology, what Christians believe about Jesus, and soteriology, what Christians believe about salvation. So to begin, I'd be interested to hear what you often find your own students or congregants struggling with as they think about Jesus and his works. Thank you. Um, well... You know, I think one of the things that people struggle with very often, and it may sound surprising, is the most basic thing of all. And that is um, to draw the connection between Jesus and who we see uh, and who we encounter in him and what he does and God. Yeah. Um, and that is such a vital connection. Um, I don't mean that these people necessarily cross their fingers when they recite the creed or haven't heard it sure. a thousand times <laughs> that of course Jesus is God. Um, but actually for the penny to drop yeah. on that sometimes doesn't happen. Um, mm. One of the one of the stories I made this very apparent to me in a neat way was um, the Scots theologian Thomas Torrance, T.F. Torrance, mm-hmm. um, who was writing and uh, books which I sort of devoured when I was uh, an undergraduate and postgraduate student um, in a popular book called The Mediation of Christ, which some listeners may actually be aware of, um, tells the story when he was an army chaplain in the Second World War um, of a soldier dying on the battlefield Mm. um, and in torment about the approach of death and Torrance kneeling down to pray with him and and the guy saying, can I be sure that God is like Jesus? Mm. Can I be sure that God is like Jesus? And of course you want to answer yes. Well, how do we know? Yes, because we draw that connection because that's who God, that's who Jesus is. God with us here in the thick of it, um, loving, forgiving, taking uh, the burden of our sin upon himself, doing all that needs to be done for our sake. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that ought to be a fairly straightforward and obvious part of any proclamation of the gospel. But it's, I find it surprising how often that nerve gets cut somehow and that people still end up thinking, for whatever reason, um, that God is out there somewhere, largely unknown, perhaps slightly scary, um, and Jesus um, comes and takes our place and does something which solves the problem that God is otherwise going to be for us. Yeah. Um, that's a totally different account of it. And, of course, God in that account of things remains unknown and scary, no matter how often we say, um, you know, Jesus is God. If yeah. we don't allow it to, to filter through that whole account and realize that this is who God is, this is what God looks like when God becomes a human being. Yeah. This is God's disposition towards us made flesh. It's not yeah. somebody else dealing with us here. Um, and that's 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 the heart of the gospel. And that's why I think um, traditional uh, accounts of the person of Jesus, if you look back to the ancient creeds and so on, it's interesting that their primary concern for several centuries was within establishing, pinning down what Christians believe about who Jesus is. Yeah. Um, and it's easy to come away with the impression that that might be because they were endlessly fascinated with philosophical categories of the sort that they bandied around quite a lot. Um, but it's not. At the end of the day, they were just wanting to exclude every other answer than that this person who we deal with here, who does these things, says these things, is this person for us, is none other than God himself. Right. Um, and the, if you let that slip, if the gap opens up between them, then actually suddenly we're not dealing with God when we're dealing with the Jesus who dies for us uh, or who offers forgiveness to sinners. Um, so it's vital to hold on to that. And I, I don't know why, but it does seem to me that very often um, Christians who've been in churches uh, for years um, have said often enough, um, yes, of course, he's you know one of one being with the Father, to use the Nicene Creed's phrase. Sure. Um, but that hasn't filtered through somehow to the to the real pulse of their faith. Um, yeah. So that, you know, people say, well, who's God? What's God like? Go and read about Jesus. Yeah. Um, so interesting. I mean, I, I don't know why. Obviously, people coming from the outside might have a, a bit of a shock encountering yeah. that claim for the first time. But of they course. might actually hear the radical nature of it better than some of us who've been impused for decades and have not really ever felt the, the shock of that. Yeah, that seems right. And, and what it does to our understanding of who God is. Yeah. Because if God is like this in Jesus, then some of the things that people have sometimes believed about God um, come in for some careful scrutiny. Right. Yeah, that's so interesting. And it's interesting, too, to note this this uh, kind of struggle that you're naming. Um, there's kind of a in, in your essays in in your book, In Him Was Life, um, there's kind of almost also the exact opposite Um it's probably not an exact opposite. That's maybe too strong of a way of saying it. But one of the things that you have to deal with over and again in, in these essays is the particularity of Jesus as a human um, and how that relates to his work for all people. Could you kind of give us some of the background to why people perceive that particularity as a problem and what people do about it? Yeah, I, I mean, it was a problem in the ancient church. It's a problem today for a different set of reasons. Yeah. Um, if I take the contemporary ones, people will at least be familiar enough with the sort of thing that I'm, you know, sketching. And it's that um, 
people say, what use is Jesus to me if Jesus, you know, uh, isn't like me? Right. If he hasn't been where I've been, if he hasn't stood where I've stood, struggled with the particular things I've struggled with, he doesn't understand, um, he can't possibly be of any use to me redemptively. Um, and that's increasingly pointed as we get further into an age in which identity politics becomes, uh, you know, I mean, what has Jesus got to say or what can Jesus do for somebody who identifies as whatever it is? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, that's fragmenting more and more as, as time goes on. And now I, th- I think the problem there is, is thinking that particularity is indeed a problem. And it seems to me that one thing that the doctrine of the incarnation, that God takes flesh and becomes a particular human being in history, calls radically into question is that particularity is actually a problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, Philosophically, it was often held to be a problem because particular things were held to be fleeting and um, problematic and um, you couldn't really base any firm knowledge on them. Going back to the the Greek philosophers, Plato and others, um, things that were more reliable were um, higher up the chain of of being, higher up the chain of knowing. So categories, um, forms, ideas, things that lots of things have in common. These had more stability. Um, And the further away you got from the particular, um, and towards the general, um, things which are shared, things which um, lots of things have in common. Knowledge was more firm mm-hmm. um, and less subject to change. Um, right. So that was a different way in which particularity and universality were related. And it's interesting that if you look at some of the Greek fathers, very often the ways in which they deal with Christology um, are, if I can put it this way, generalizing. Mm. That's to say, um, they tend to deal with Jesus on the level of things we all have in common as human beings. Right. Um, now, human nature or something along those lines. Exactly. Too. They talk about Jesus, you know, taking our humanity. And you can just hear the, uh, the sort of le- uh, the uh, feminist theologians or, you know, the black theologians or, or whatever group it is coming in and saying, that's an abstraction. My humanity right. is radically different from yours. Jesus needs to be, you know, like me, if he's going to be any use to me. Um, right. I think the, the, the danger of, of responding to that too forthrightly is you let go too easily of the particularity of Jesus. So mm. what the way that that becomes apparent in, in for example, the, uh, some of the Greek fathers is that they're very interested in talking about Jesus' humanity and the things in which we all share, yeah. um, physicality, um, mind, spirit, the emotional life, sin, to be sure, um, all general categories, they often don't have a lot to say about the particular things the New Testament tells us about Jesus. Right. And yet that's where we're told we see um, God at work redemptively in in history. Mm -hmm. Um, That's where we see um, Jesus revealing God most fully, in not by being a human being or simply taking humanity upon himself or uniting our humanity to godhead some of these categories that they do tend to use right important though those things may be at the end of the day if they're taking a step back or away from the gospel stories about you know the sorts of things that jesus did and the sorts of things that jesus said and the Mm -hmm. things that happened to jesus and didn't happen to other people um then christology can become very problematic very quickly Mm -hmm. Um, we need somehow to ground some of the more general things we say in those particularities and hold them together with them um so i think theology based on christology has somehow to hold together the idea that 
something particular, and certainly this particular set of things, who Jesus was, the things that happened to him, the people he engaged with, can be of universal significance and not merely local significance. So that, that's quite a challenge, but it seems to me a fundamental point to make. So one of the people that you work with is um, Richard Bauckham. Uh, yes. and, and you talk about, uh, I don't know, if, is this is his term differential solidarity? Yeah, that's that's the phrase I think uh, that was, uh, he used in, a, in an essay he wrote a long time ago now, but um, uh, I've been reading it and offering it to students for uh, scrutiny over several decades about universality and particularity. And he makes the observation about um, generalizing strategies and says, actually, we need to get back precisely to a point where we can ground our understanding of the significance of Jesus for others in his own radical particularity, right. in the fact he was different. from It's almost a, almost a, a paradoxical um, shift so that it's precisely his particularity, the fact that he's not like us and yet shares something in common with us that is transformative for us. Now, the way he does it in, in that essay, which I would certainly commend to uh, uh, to anybody who, who's interested in the subject, is in terms of uh, what used to be called narrative theology. In other words, uh, he, he points out that in, this, in the Gospels, what you see is Jesus going about an ordinary human life in many ways, which is radically particular. Um, so he's in a particular time and a particular place, and they're not the time and place that we're in. And he's having conversations with specific people. Um, and all these radically specific and particular um, encounters go on and in and through them, who Jesus is, and the fact that he's not the people that he meets, um, impacts them in all sorts of ways. So, you know, he um, he meets uh, sinners, he meets those who need healing, he meets Pharisees, he meets all sorts of people. And who he is impacts on them differently. Right. Um, bearing in mind, so it's their particularity and his coming into a sort of a, a crunch of gears almost, but it's transformative crunch of gears because they're affected by him. They right. can't not be. They're either challenged um, or they're judged um, or they're encouraged or they're healed. They're forgiven, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Now, what Richard does is says we have these things in the Gospels. We, too, are particular people. And we come with a whole mixture of different things that are unique to us, actually. No one else is quite like me um, yeah. fortunately, or you. Um, so as we come to those stories, we find ourselves somewhere in that panoply of um, of different sorts of person, and it might be different at different times. Mm -hmm. And the character of Jesus in his particularity as we encounter him um, actually impacts us analogously too. So we might find ourselves, as we meet him in the pages of the Gospels, being called into question and judged. Yeah. We may find ourselves being forgiven or encouraged. We may find ourselves being healed. Yeah. Um, particularity which transcends uh, mere particularity to be um, well, you, ultimately universally significant that can apply to everybody and affect everybody. Yeah, very interesting. Another question, another word I think that would come up quite often in your essays that has come up quite often in your essays is substitution. It's a mm. complicated word for all sorts of reasons. What have theologians meant when they say that Jesus' work is substitutionary, and, and how how would you suggest kind of understanding that term theologically? Yeah, I mean, substitution has a bit of a bad press uh, sometimes. Um, and I mean, all it means, of course, is, as it would suggest, uh, naturally enough, that somebody 
stands in for somebody else, does something instead of somebody else, substitutes themselves for somebody at a certain point. Um, and what they do or what they're substituting in that situation might be all sorts of things. Um, now, classically in Christian theology, and particularly since the Reformation um, in Protestant theologies, substitutions tended to be focused on um, the doctrine of atonement, tends to be focused on penal judicial uh, right. understandings of how the cross does what it does, how Jesus does what he does. Um, without wanting to call that into question, although I think some, there are some versions of it which are problematic for a number of reasons. Right. Um, it, substitution is much broader than that. I mean, Jesus substitutes himself for us um, in a whole range of different ways by taking out and by becoming human. Yeah. So he unites himself to, to us by taking our, our nature upon himself. And then he does the things that we don't do. And he avoids doing the things that we do do, but at a very general level. Yeah. He's able to um, fulfill the covenant, for example, on our behalf. That's one way the New Testament um, fairly regularly pictures Jesus as, you know, the true Israel. Right. The one who enters into our relationship with God um, as a human being and as a human being fulfills the law mm -hmm. um, where we don't. I mean, we like Israel, we constantly fail to do that. Um, he hallows God's name in what he does. Right. Um, we don't. We constantly fail to do it. Right. So there's that sense of him putting himself in our place in order to do for us things we cannot do for ourselves. And that's, I guess, the other part of the implication of substitution is he does it because we can't. Yeah. Um, now, what he does, as I say, could be a whole, a whole welter of things. Um, and I suppose... Um, Really, if you take it to its most, uh, its broadest, what he does is he fulfills um, what it is to be a son of God or a child of God as a human being. Right. Whereas we were created to do that, but none of us actually can do it. We're, we're trapped. We're bound in sin. Um, we fall short. We're wayward. People are familiar enough with uh, mm -hmm. the doctrine of sin. But substitution shouldn't be limited to any one um, particular strand, I think, of atonement theology. It is the whole substitution by God. Yeah. Again, going back, it's God who does this. Right. Puts himself in our place to do for us humanly what humanly we fail time and time again to do. Yeah. Um, so that emphasis of doing things instead of us because we can't do them is vital, I think. Yeah. Um, the, the other strand, though, and these two tend to get polarized in discussions very often of atonement theology is you know representation mm, um, mm. representation um is well okay in doing what he does that uh, jesus on this in this case um carries us with him uh, he's there to represent us yeah. in the way that you know i don't know a, a spokesperson or a diplomat or whatever might be and that's that's very important too it's it picks up on the theme for example in, in the old testament of the on the day of atonement where the you know the high priest uh, once a year, goes into the Holy of Holies, mm -hmm. wearing all those weird things on his outfit, um, to represent that he carries the whole nation right. in there with him and does something on their behalf. Um, now, that that's a very important strand. But if you let go of the, the flip side, which is 
and that he does it because we cannot do it for ourselves, mm-hmm. um, that can become very dangerous because it can simply be, well, you know, Jesus is the best possible manifestation of what we are humanly. Right. And and he goes and does it instead of us and on our behalf because we don't have to bother. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, you know, that that's why substitution and representation have to be held together. Jesus does bear us with him on his shoulders, as it were. Yeah. Um, he carries us with him in all that he does. We, what he does is who we are now, but he does it because we can't. Yeah. That's the substitutionary aspect. Mm. Um, one, one further thing I'll say, and then um, we might want to move on, but I, um, the link between substitution and Jesus' suffering and death um, can be overstated in an unhelpful way, it seems to me, and that is simply this. I mean, a lot of versions of that doctrine will say he suffered so that we didn't have to mm-hmm. um now there probably is some deep truth in that at some point sure but as a general maxim it seems to me to be palpable nonsense <laughs> um do tell i mean just look around yeah. he suffered and died so that we didn't have to yeah no clearly not in quite fact, unrealistic if- yeah well, it's unrealistic. Empirically, it makes no sense. But it, the point is, it undermines the thing the New Testament does say time and time again. He suffered in our place, and he did it in a way that we can't do it. Mm-hmm. As a perfect offering to the Father. We don't get to do that, not yet anyway. But not so that we didn't have to, but precisely so that we might then suffer in the same way. That's why we get so much about suffering with Christ, you know, picking up the cross and carrying it. All those things, not to yeah. avoid any of that. It's to to turn it from mere suffering into an offering of ourselves um, to God, our Father, and handing our lives back to Him. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And I, I don't quite want to move on yet because you you okay. make what I think is a really helpful. Um, it, it seems persuasive to me. I'm not a Calvin expert, so so I could be mm-hmm. wrong about this, but it seemed compelling to me. That you read Calvin as saying something like substitution is primary, but not own not the only sort of thing that Jesus does. I, th- I think what you end up concluding is that for Calvin, substitution in some sense entails yep. participation. <clears throat> it, yes, I think that's that's a helpful way of putting it. I think it is again, it is substitutionary because Christ comes in Christ, God comes finally to do the thing that God calls human beings to be and to do, and none of us ever have, and does it for us. And so there's that sense of substitution. But again, it's not exclusive. It's not, it's not meant to leave us out. Right. It's meant to, it's inclusive. So that's mm-hmm. the paradox. It's instead of us, because that's vital to, uh, to realizing, that, you know, really, he came to do it precisely because we can't. Yeah. And yet what he does is intended not to leave us in the, in the wings, Right. But to draw us with him now in the wake of his doing of it, to participate in it, yeah. to share in it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the whole of Jesus' life seems to me in, in the Gospels um, to be a perpetual offering. Mm-hmm. Um, you could almost call it liturgical. I mean, it's, you know, from the moment at the baptism of Jesus where the father pours the spirit out on his son and says, you know, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. You know, you better listen to him. Yeah. Um, Right the way through to the cross, where Jesus on the cross uh, prays that prayer, you know, um, in, you know, um, into your hands I commend my spirit, and um, 
apart from, you know, why have you forsaken me, which is the dark side of it. Yeah. But it's still an offering. It's a voluntary offering. He goes because he chooses to go, not because he's dragged screaming. Right. Um, and John, you know, in his treatment of that, um, talks about Jesus, you know, breathing his last. But I mean, um, you can translate the, the Greek there very straightforwardly uh, without any twisting of it as offered up the spirit. Right. Now, you know, there you go. I mean, nice parallelism. Yeah. Uh, Jesus receives the spirit at his baptism. He completes the course of his ministry. He offers the spirit back to the father and with it himself, yeah. you know, a single uh, living sacrifice. Yeah. Um, and that's the dynamic that he draws us into through his having done it once because it needed to be done and no one would or could. Yeah. Um, but not to leave us out so that we don't have to do it precisely to draw us in. Yeah. Um, of course, the, the key thing is that now he's done it once. Uh, we can chuck ourselves into it, you know, excitedly and enthusiastically, because we know if we muck up and get it wrong, it's not the end of the world. Right. Because he's done it for us. Mm. Um, and now he calls us to get involved. So it's liberating. Yeah. Um, it's not a burden. Um, you know, come and get involved. It's You'll suffer, but, you know, and don't don't worry, you won't get it right, but, let, but do it anyway. Right. Um, and gradually, through that participation, we're made... Um, more like him and, and drawn into that relationship of sonship which is um, in the heart of God yeah. you are listening to Currents in Religion and I am speaking with Trevor Hart about his book In Him Was Life published by Baylor University Press So participation leads me to another aspect of these essays that I, that I really appreciated. Um, you you uh, you ask kind of time and again about deification, um, mm. the, the theopoesis, uh, a theology that was quite popular in the East in the early church, um, but for Protestants has been particularly kind of problematic. Until more recently, where there seems to be kind of almost a recovery of of this idea that that somehow what Jesus does uh, results in something that we might call deification. People qualify and nuance that word in yeah. all sorts of ways. Uh, give us some background here. What's what what's the idea of deification? How would Jesus render that to us? And and how are people thinking about it? Or how are you thinking about it? Maybe I should say. Okay. Um, well, terms are terms, and <laughs> um, they can be understood in different ways. As you say, it was very important in the in the patristic period in the East, especially. It still is very important in the East, in the Orthodox yeah. world, of course. Yeah. Um, why have Protestants on the whole sought to avoid the language? Um, I think part of that, frankly, is just because they knew it was you know, not good Western Protestant language and therefore they should be chary of it. But um but there was a there was there was a school of interpretation of uh, of the early Greek um theologians in the late 19th century onwards um in Germany, which really interpreted a lot of what went on in Greek theology in the first five centuries as taking the gospel story and simply dressing it up in Greek philosophical categories. Right. And the suspicion was that deification was a, an example of this. Um, that actually what was going on was this was a description of um, salvation 
in some sense, as the infusing into human beings of divine stuff or, right. you know, or transforming human nature into something divine. And the reality is that there are approximations to that in, in, in early Greek theologians, some of them. Um, you know, I mean, apologetic impulses tend to lead people to do and say some strange things sometimes. Mm -hmm. You want to win people over. So you go, hey, what I'm talking about is not that different from what you guys talk about. And so, you know, you talk about uh, gods coming down and people becoming, you know, through uh, various states of, of change, becoming more like gods. Well, here's, you know, now that people can get run away with themselves there and, and get into all sorts of problems. And there was some of that, no doubt about it. Um, but there is a very central and clear tradition, which is palpably trying to avoid that, but wanting to hold on to a central insight they believed was there. And that is simply the narrative arc of the biblical uh, characterization of God, that God creates a world. Why? Uh, to dwell in communion mm -hmm. with himself, um, that um, his intention is to draw heaven and earth together. I mean, the whole temple theology of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, um, not to transform the world into God, but but actually to draw the world into the life of God, yeah. um, to be as close as it can possibly be, um, and for that to be palpable, for the glory of God to be manifest in the midst of creation. Um, how is that realized? Ultimately, skip forward several, uh, you know, millennia and a, a lot of the Old Testament. Um, finally, it ends up with God becoming a human being. Mm -hmm. um, the, the divine son becomes a human being and lives out a life of sonship in the midst of creation, lives out what it means to be the son of God humanly. Okay. Um, now, if you interpret that slightly more positively than has sometimes been interpreted, namely it's sometimes been presented as a you know, sort of cosmic salvage exercise, um, this was only necessitated by sin. Well, in some sense, yes, but... On the other hand, God becomes a human being and dwells in the midst of the world. And John says, and, you know, we have seen God's glory. Mm -hmm. he, you know, he tabernacled among us. It, this is the presence of God humanly in the world, drawing heaven and earth together. Yeah. And, and what does he do? Um, well, if you use Pauline language, um, he draws us as sons and daughters into his own right. filial relationship with his right. father. Um, he takes our lives and draws them into God's life. So that actually now, not we're not just distinct from God, which we are, of course, and we remain. Mm -hmm. um, this is why the this is why the so-called two natures doctrine of the Council of Chalcedon was really very important for this, because they wanted to say, you know, God became a human being without blending or blurring the distinction between mm -hmm. the Creator and you know the created, or right. the created and the uncreated. That boundary is never transgressed. In orthodox theology, properly speaking. Um, but what happens is that God oversteps it and now lives, occupies both sides of it, as it were. Yeah. Um, so God comes to be where we are so that we might be drawn more fully to be in communi communion and share the life, um, which is his life eternally. Um, so if we can just get away from talking about substances and all that sort of thing, it's much easier to talk about. Yeah. Because in God, there is this. I don't know, you know, I mean, the doctrine of the Trinity is just as baffling as it always has been, but it's rich. And, um, you know, God is not sort of isolated, solitary, monad, drifting around with nothing to do, creating 
because there's nothing else to do. And, you know, uh, it looks like an interesting object. I mean, there's an intent here to draw some some other into communion right. and to share life. Um, and the sun actually enters into human history and so grounds the father-son relationship, which is there in God eternally, right. grounds that relationship now in history and in, in the created order. Um, that is a huge claim. Um, because really, it, it obliges us to say, if we take with Easter, um, you know, uh, on the doorstep, as we record this, um, it, it obliges us to say that in the resurrection and the ascension, uh, Jesus doesn't shed his humanity. Right. He remains human. What's mm -hmm. that about? I mean, whatever sense we make of it, you know, in terms of trying to picture it, it means this is a permanent claim that God places on our humanity and says, you are mine. And furthermore, you are mine. Um, you're here to share in this relationship that, my, that I and my son share. Right. That's your that's who you're going to be. Um, and the spirit is poured out um, just as it was poured out at creation and just as it was poured out at the, in the incarnation, mm -hmm. um, um, Jesus' baptism. So there's a Trinitarian dynamic, which is now actually part and parcel of the created order. Um, right. And somehow we have to sort of try and work out what, what that means for us. Um, and it's not just, it's not good enough, I don't think, to say, well, because Jesus came and did what he did, we now have access to the Father, um, by which very often I think, you know, good Protestant, particularly for, you know, Protestant evangelicals like me sort of mean we can sort of, you know, we can approach slightly nervously. And <laughs> it's because, you know, God now has done something which means he doesn't have to zap us, even though we'd just love to. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it's not that, it's, it's actually, no, God has drawn us in to share in the joy which is god's own life right and i think deification potentially problematic as the as the language is um is is, is a good term because it causes us to stop and think and to take on board the radical nature of that claim mm. um that who is god i mean god isn't a hanging judge just waiting to get you right god isn't a an abstract, un uninterested, uh, remote, um, metaphysical entity with no involvement in the world. God is one who created us in order that this might be the case, that we would dwell together with him. Mm -hmm. um, and to accomplish that and to bring it to fruition cost all that we read about and talk yeah. about in Old and New Testaments, that, you know, the purging of um, sin and evil from the created world so that it can dwell together with God um, and, and so that it reflects who God is and hallows God's name. Um, so, yeah, I, I like the language of deification just because among people who won't countenance using it, I often find that bigger picture missing. Yeah. And I, I think if it does nothing else than draw attention to the bigger picture, even if you have to say, like, deification, you say, well, I don't mean this then you've got their attention and yeah. you can say, you know, here's, here's what I think it means. Right. Um, I think in the book I say, I, I think, you know, for deification, theopoiesis, um, for someone like Athanasius, who's one of the main um, promulgators of, of the sort of thing I've been talking about um, with Cyril and, and others, but Athanasius really, the end of the day, if you were to trans translate the term theopoiesis, it would be huiopoiesis, that's to say, sonship or yeah. a more broad non-gendered version of that 
Um, in other words, Fami- being familiar familiarity or filiality. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so we come to share in this father son relationship. Um, mm-hmm. Two things uh, just to refer to a reformer who says something about this, and that's Calvin, interestingly. Yeah. Calvin <laughs> says two things I think are very significant here. He says, you know, Jesus became God, became human in such a way that he had God in common with us. Mm-hmm. In other words, he really became human. Yeah. Um, and secondly, he says, you know, the love with which the father loves us is not a, no other love than the love with which he loves the son. Mm-hmm. And so, again, it's, that's the that's the relational re- reality we are being drawn into. Yeah. Um, it's and not one analogous to it. It's not the second or third order one. It is the same love with which the father loves his son. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that's the sort of thing I have in mind anyway. Yeah. And it's, I mean, this, the question is framed differently uh, by all sorts of people, but in, in New Testament studies where I'm a little bit more up on the, on the reading, you know, there's, there's just a a slew of publications in the past decade on uh, what it means to be in Christ for Paul uh, or in, especially the epistles of John, um, right? We dwell in him and he in us. There's this this mm. some some level of closeness uh that's not just proximity it's not like just geographical it's not just that Jesus came and was near us in the incarnation right. but that somehow what Jesus does is grants us access uh draws us in um assumes us some some, some kind of language that that, pe- that theologians have been trying to take account of that comes directly from New Testament phrases and ideas, um, yeah. and and I just think that that's such a uh, an important conversation, and it and it pairs really well, I think, with the increasing interest in sacramentality uh, uh, among traditions that have not often um, emphasized the sacraments. Um, yeah. But thinking again with Calvin, I think it's Calvin who talks about the sursum corda, uh, lifting lift up your hearts as kind of the one of the phrases now that's associated with most. Uh, communion liturgies and has for a long time been associated with communion liturgies as kind of the opening of the great thanksgiving um well that in itself reminds us that that in a a large part of christian tradition breaking bread together is one way that we experience and participate in uh christ being with us and us with christ in some some way some mystery right Um, so i just think that it's an important conversation and i appreciate it uh, in your chapter, you're, you're looking, I think, specifically at T.F. Torrance again, uh, and it's just such a thought-provoking and thoughtful way um, to to try and get get at the bigger picture that this is not separate from Christ Himself ever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Whatever it is that's happening is happening in relation, human relation with Christ, uh, yeah. who is Christ is part of the Godhead is is in a unique relationship with God. And draws us somehow to share in that. Yeah, I, I think I mean a key phrase for me, which is in the in the creed, um, and obviously taken from Paul, uh, referring to Jesus, um, uh, is you know through him all things were made. Now, yeah. it's it's interesting to me that if you go back forty or fifty years um, and look at New Testament studies, there was a there was a rash then of uh, of studies um, exploring this whole idea and you get stuff by Aubrey Johnson, mm-hmm. um, Charlie Moore, um, uh, J.T. Robinson, 
uh, a whole bunch of others asking, you know, what can it possibly mean to say, you know, it, we are in Christ? And um, I remember reading a piece by Helen Oppenheimer, a uh, classicist um, philosopher, saying, um, of course, you know, this is um, uh, Paul talks about us being in Christ. And um, it seems to mean literally in Christ. But since we know that's not possible, it can't possibly mean that. So, you know, <laughs> you know come on, is that how we approach, you know? Uh and, and Charlie Mole, I have to say, his book, The Origin of Christology, um, it was back in the 70s, I think, uh, I think said, look, we may not understand what it means. We may mm -hmm. not yet have an adequate theological account to give of it. But it's so central to Paul that, you know, we have to take it seriously and we can't right. just say that's not what it means. Um, I wrestled with this over the years, obviously, um, having written a fair bit about it in one context or another. And, you know, I, I think this, if there is an answer to be given, it lies in the direction, again, of simply saying, but who is this particular man right. with whom I seem to have no really close connection? Um, you know, uh, I have a beard, uh, although not an impressive one. Um, I'm male, um, but that doesn't seem to hack it either. I've never been to Palestine. I, you know, all the particular right. things don't line me up with Jesus or make me close to him in that sense. But if this one is the one who in and through whom all things were made and he becomes a human being, then is there not almost um, unsurprisingly a bond established between his particular humanity and all other humanity, mine included? Yeah. Um, um, because it's not the case that I think Paul is working or, you know, John or whoever else, the Old, Old Testament, not, whole theme of the one and the many in the old you know people wrote about endlessly and they mm -hmm. tended to ascribe it to sort of primitive anthropologies or primitive you know views of um society or, or something and I, I don't i don't think it is at all i think i don't think paul thinks for a moment that um you know there's any other human being that he would want to describe himself or me as being in yeah it's this it's this jesus why because well who is he He's the one in and through him, through whom all and for whom all things were made. So the fact that his humanity is bonded in a way that I will never understand, probably, um, to mine and to yours and to everybody else's, mm -hmm. um, that might not come as a complete surprise. Sure. In fact, it might even be the sort of thing one might expect, um, whether we get, ever get our head around it or not. Yeah. yeah. And it isn't invalidated by the fact that he's particular and very different to you and me. Yeah. All right. Last question as we wrap up here. Um, sure. Not a small one. <laughs> uh, probably one of the greatest emphases that I see throughout this particular collection of essays is a reminder that Christ and his works should not be separated as if who Christ is and what Christ has done and still does for us are somehow abstracted from one another. Uh, tell us why you think that this is such a significant point to grasp. <clears throat> well, I, I suppose, in a sense, it, it's the premise or the presupposition of most of what I've been saying for the last 20, 25 minutes. That's to say, um, there has been a tradition, particularly in Western um, theology, um, going back to the Middle Ages and even before that, of seeing Christ's person almost as um, the thing, I mean, who Jesus is, um, is what qualifies him to do something else, mm -hmm. namely affect our salvation. 
Um, so, you, you know, if you start with a, a model of salvation, you say, well, what, what would Jesus have to be in order to accomplish that? Yeah. And, and, and that then ties up with who he actually is. Um, you get a little bit of that in something like Anselm's Cordeus Homo, the, you know, whereas he's the God man, he needed to be fully man in order to blah, blah, blah. He needed to be God because he couldn't have done this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the sort of thinking. Um, a more familiar version of it among Protestant theologians, I guess, would be he needed to be human because only humans can die on the cross. Um, and furthermore, only humans deserve to. Um, and he needed to be God because that's why his suffering counts for everybody. That sort of... Now, without again, wanting to entirely belittle either of those discussions, I you know, want to qualify them very carefully. But you can see there how the work and the person are two distinct things. And that's why in classic systematic theologies, um, you, might end, you might get a treatment of the person of Christ in one huge chapter, which says relatively little about so-called work of Christ. And then you get another section on the work of Christ. Right. Um, I think the danger of that sort of abstraction or, or passing things out is that it loses the vital thing, which is there is a real sense in which Jesus is his work. Mm-hmm. Um, what did Jesus come to do? Well, first of all, his coming in the first place was part of what he did. Um, and he came um, to take our humanity upon himself. Um, that wasn't simply in order to, as it were, acquire some qualification which enabled him to do something else. Mm-hmm. Taking our humanity upon himself was, as we've been saying the last half hour, um, the thing which actually redeemed our humanity because in taking it, um, he laid hold of it, made it his own, lived it out in a way that no one else could, um, and then handed it back to his father as an offering um, and continues to dwell in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, at that point, Christology you know, in what sense is Jesus human? In what sense is Jesus divine? And how does that pan out? That is the heart of the doctrine of incarnation and atonement. Yeah. Um, atonement as a term is another one that's a little troubled in its history um, and sometimes is only understood as a very partial sort of thing and not the bigger picture. But the bigger picture of it is God and humankind are at one. Yeah. Um, now, that's tended to be sh- you know shrunk down to... Jesus comes along, does something, and after that, it's all okay between God and us. Uh, but don't do it again. Um, <laughs> and, it, and again, of course, there's some truth in that. But the bigger picture is, this is God's intent from all eternity, mm-hmm. is to dwell in communion with us, to have a creature drawn into the life of love, which is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and all that happens through the narrative is aimed at the realisation of that same thing and its completion. And that is actually the bringing together of creation and creator so that they dwell together as one. Creation, without losing its integrity as creaturely, shares fully in the life of God. Um, We share fully in filial relation with the Father. Um, That's the substance of salvation. That is eternal life. Um, Eternal life isn't a reward we get for something Jesus did for us. It's sharing in that whole dynamic action mm-hmm. of Father, Son, and Spirit um, through the history of Israel, through the history of Jesus, um, and through to new creation at the Eschaton. Um, and yeah, that's why. And I think you know why is the resurrection so important? Not because it's just a way of 
God, you know, Jesus, God thumbing his nose at death. Um, death's got Jesus. But now the real thing is the paying of the price for sin on Good Friday. And we all focus on that. But so what's the resurrection about? What's the ascension about? Um, they're not simply an unpicking in some sense of, of right. the nasty aspects of that. No, no, no. These are it's Jesus goes through that in order to, to bring our humanity to this. Yeah. And then to take it back with him uh, into the heart of the father. And that's the trajectory we are destined for as well. Mm-hmm. And already begin to share in now as 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 we do. So um yeah, person and work, work and person, I I really do think it's important to see that it's not just they need to be held together, it's that insofar as there's a distinction at all, it's a distinction in unity, that they are in a sense the same thing. Mm-hmm. Jesus comes to be, you know, what he is in order to do what he does, um, right. and vice versa. That the the person is the substance. Mm-hmm. We get to be um, part of a humanity drawn into God's life, um, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Um, but uh, yeah, at the end of the day, there's the substance of salvation is is the human son, mm-hmm. and us sharing in him and participant in him. Dr. Trevor Hart, thank you so much for speaking with us today. My pleasure. Thanks once more to Trevor Hart for making time to talk with us even during the hustle and bustle of Holy Week. If you enjoyed this conversation, I'd encourage you to pick up his book, In Him Was Life, from Baylor Press, or his new book, Confessing and Believing, out now with Fortress Press. But before you go buy those books, do us a favor and share this episode with some folks who you think would enjoy it too. If you share it on Twitter, make sure to tag us at C-I-R Baylor. You can leave us a rating to let us know how we're doing, and make sure you subscribe so you get updated whenever we release new episodes. Thanks again for listening today, and until next time, take care.